0: So I think the problem is that people try to apply the same ideas to different sides. And for me, you need very different practices of agile when you are 20 people company, when you grow after 50, when you're 150, or when you are 500 and then further. For some reason, People try to use, don't look at the context and use what works for 500 people company in a 20 people organization or vice versa. What works in 50 people organization, try to apply to 500 people organization, and the context and the size really matters. You have to be very, very cautious about that.
1: Hey, everyone, and welcome to For the Love of Product, brought to you by the Product Led Alliance. I'll be your host, Tioma Hansen-Drury, Chief Product Officer at MENA Technologies and all around passionate product aficionado. Each episode, we'll be looking at the head and the heart behind product-led growth, the passion and the practice of product, and we'll be picking the brains of seasoned CPOs and heads of products, as well as visionary founders and investors getting their inside stories. Enjoy! And welcome to another episode of For the Love of Product. I am thrilled today to have um, a local London uh, FinTech uh, Chief Product Officer. His name is Vidas uh, Adamaskis, And Vidas brings a wealth of experience gained in different product management, strategy, and delivery roles across FinTech, SME banking, software as a service, and banking as a service. He currently is the Chief Product Officer at Uncapped. He is the previous head of Revolut Business at Revolut. He's also acted as product director at Rails Bank, and then was the founder and CEO of Warapay and the product manager owner at Adform. Vidas, thank you so much for joining us today. Are you are you zooming in from London?
0: Uh, hello, thanks for having me here. Yes, I'm calling in from London.
1: <laughs> well, we're happy to have you, and we can report to everyone listening. It's one of those rare days where London is actually sunny. So. Um, with that, let's jump right in. And Vidas, I'd love to, uh, I'd love to just start with, you know, the way that I kind of conceptualize you. So we first met on a discussion panel. Um, and I remember walking away thinking like, okay, Vidas is like the scale guy, like he's good at scaling teams, he's good at scaling things. Um, what do you think when you hear me characterize you that way? Does it meet the way that you think about yourself?
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, uh, this is one of my passions and uh, what I think, at least in the last two, two, two roles, I uh, found to be good at you know, joining uh, Revolut and running Revolut business. So when I joined, it was 70 people plus and we scaled to 150. It's a cross-functional product department. And probably everyone knows that Revolut is, is known for its fast product delivery. So I think uh, I, I found my spot there. I excelled there. and I, Now I'm thinking how to reuse those experiences. Good and bad, of course, there's always mistakes to, to learn from, but uh, to take the good things and, and talk about that more, share about that more, and help uh, others, uh, and of course myself in other, other jobs to, to use those experiences.
1: Fantastic. Well, I know that today we're going to definitely double click on some of those scaling journey uh, learnings. And actually, you've done a fantastic piece of content that's out there, we'll put it in the show notes, um, where you kind of give your secret sauce on how you look at scaling uh, product teams during the hyper growth stage, which is something that lots of people will find useful, I think. Um, so before we dive into that, let's talk a little bit about you and your journey. So uh, in the intro, I gave a bit of the different stops along your, your leadership journey. Um, take, us, uh, take us back to kind of some of the big moments during that uh, progression.
0: I think one of the biggest moments is when we needed to kill our child in 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 a, in a hopefully uh, in a nice way and standard so the, our own startup BoraPay we spent almost 6 years uh, building it uh, scaling getting investment scaling from Lithuania where I'm from to UK traveling here building the network working with Mastercard and Lloyds Banking Group and then still we needed to, to, to shut it down. So on the other hand, it was the first startup or the first my entrepreneurship experience after the real job Uh, so probably success chances statistically it's it's not that high uh, but it was a very interesting journey lots of lots of learnings and emotionally definitely hard to close it like that on the other hand I'm always optimistic and when I look back now it really opened so many new doors and, and accelerated my growth so it's you know those of feelings which are both ways
1: Wow. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like uh, obviously, as we always tend to do, or mostly tend to do, we come out of those really hard periods with learnings and growth. But um, let's take a step back and go a bit deeper on that decision that you made, and tell us a little bit more about like what was Warape, what was what was the problem you were trying to solve, Uh, where were you in your life when you were going through this? Uh, Give us a bit more color
0: yeah cool yeah so uh, b- before Warpay, uh, i was working in an active business as product manager uh i was in product management before although from from a uh, background i'm software engineer so i'm that software engineer who doesn't code too much but tries to solve uh, and understand customer problems and then discuss with engineers how to solve them best uh so after being a bit bored probably or, or really want to do something on my own we we started Warpay. As a real startup, it pivoted few times. Uh, we started early days on a promise at that time that um, there was lots of mobile wallets popping up. Uh, there was every app wanted to become a wallet. It's even before Evolut started. Uh, and uh, we realized that you can't, like, everyone cannot approach merchants and say now integrate twenty apps uh, at the point of sale. So we thought to create a bit of like Mastercard or Visa network that is definitely tailored to these uh, different types of wallets. So for example, in Lithuania, you could pay for your petrol, paying with the Bitcoin app at that time, which was still before Bitcoin boom. You could pay with a real banking app. It was integrated within an existing bank's app or a kind of a credit card type of wallet. So it doesn't matter what tool you use, it, it, it worked. And at the end, you got to pay it for your petrol. Uh, so that was the beginning, but then uh, we realized that we're looking for solution for technology versus the problem to solve. We realized that customers don't wake up every morning and saying, "Oh, what technology I'll, I'll use to pay for my coffee today?" Uh, you you really need to figure out the problems, and then we pivoted we to the problem of killing the queues, basically, on or how to avoid waiting in a queue. I personally, myself, I'm very impatient. I I hate queues. I I have two daughters now. So we went to Legoland last weekend. And of course, I bought the Jump the Queue system. So like seven or eight years ago, uh, we created the same. We we thought how to pre-order, for example, for your coffee when when you uh, want your coffee, but you don't want to stay for that long queue. And once we moved to UK, we focus on catering industries. So the Lloyds Banking Group was an ideal customer. There is about 60,000 employees across all 60 offices in in, in UK. Uh, Every office has a cafeteria downstairs, but if you're in the morning, you're coming to the work, you want to get your, your, your latte, but then you stand in the queue. So basically, you jump off the tube, you click two buttons, your favorite latte, what you want. You place the order, three, five minutes for you to walk to the office. Your order is there. You just grab it and walk to your desk. Lunchtime is the same. So we literally built uh, that, that kind of pre-ordering uh, system. Uh, it was not so much scalable. Kind of We, we, we kind of had an investment or rem- money rem- 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 run out and we decided that it's not at the time because training people to pre-order a scan QR code seemed uh, a tough game. And then two years later or three years later, COVID came, hit. And then I went to the pub and I was forced to scan QR code to pre-order my beer to the table because by the law, it was at that time. needed. So it's again proved how the timing in the business is so important. Not only India, not only the, the technology, we had technology, everything is just a few years too early because training uh, or teaching new new experiences, customers was, we were just, it was too hard for us. Uh, but yeah, that's, that was an overall experience.
1: How did you come to the place where you guys had to make that hard decision that you were not going to keep going um, and that you were going to shut it down?
0: So it was a few things came in. One, it was business was not scaling as fast um, as our investor uh, kind of would appreciate it. Now, when I'm more in high growth business, uh, I get to that uh, advice probably more clear. Actually, one good advice, advised us said, if two three years, you cannot scale it up probably there are easier ways to kind of, you need to find something else. We were really stubborn from Eastern Europe, from from Lithuania, we were pushing it uh, hard. uh, So lots of learnings. Another side, it was also actually, uh, maybe another part of the story, our original uh, shareholder setup was not the best. uh, In a sense, we had one passive investor slash kind of founder. And that person then started uh, thinking that maybe he wants to keep control and kind of, build it without any kind of uh, extra spend. So that was both kind of a tense situation that business is not growing nice, plus uh, internal a bit shareholder disagreements. And uh, there was about a year going back and forth, and then we decided to stop. I think going backwards, to be honest, uh, the only the one thing I regret that I did not, we did not split one year earlier, because last year it was not... Um, the most fun and it didn't go anywhere anyway so i know there's always this tendency you need to push you have to be persistent uh and that type of thought but also i think we also have to be cautious to think is it are we really just banging the wall and that wall is too high and how to make that balance because you know time is our biggest currency i think uh we want it or not and then you always have to base your decision you know you know what, for example, extra year of learning, extra year of doing, putting your energy somewhere else would bring more benefits to society, to what you do, to even your own personal life and personal emotions.
1: And, and what about you and your um, founders or your co-founders? Um, you know how how did that impact your relationships? How did you guys kind of wind this down and move forward? Um, I think that's something that a lot of people don't talk about when they say they wind down a business. Um, What's that look like and how did you approach that and any learnings for people to to take away on that piece?
0: So I think it always starts how you run, you know, with your life day to day, because if you're really honest, transparent, if you respect people, then... Bad things happen in life. You'd still talk to people and they still understand you. They trust you, continue trusting you. Uh, if you try, of course, to hide something, you know, think only about business, don't have emotional attachment, then probably is much, much harder. So in our case, except that one was that one stakeholder, uh, founder, that, that that was not the most helpful. Uh, so we don't keep in contact with him. But then the rest, my other co-founder, uh Kind of spin off another business and now exited it, sold it to some up, and we continue keeping relationship and we keep in touch. And uh, when I'm Lithuania, we, we, we meet and talk. Other CTO, my CTO that I brought, actually, I brought him to Rails Bank. So he followed me to another uh, journey and we, we together built a RD center in Lithuania in source development. And now, you know, Rails Bank is 1 billion worth company. So he, we together were in the early days of that. Um, yeah, with uh, uh, yeah, other we were quite small company, of course, five seven people. But whoa, with, with our partner in UK, Richard, actually, we are meeting next week uh, for for beers because we build, of course, nice network here. And and him, so when I moved here, he's one of the persons I I, I have here. But literally, it's just building new relationships, and that decision is tough. But if you were honest and transparent and really treat everyone as as your team, as as we all in it together people understand it and actually again even for them including the same as they said for myself but for them this opens totally new opportunities and and they found how useful it was that we tried and 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 created that business even if it didn't end up in a successful exit or
1: yeah yeah exactly okay it makes sense so it seems like if I understand your career trajectory correctly you never went back to ad tech or martech or anything. Um, you basically jumped into the world of fintech and uh, banking as a service and banking tech, um, and never looked back. Why was that? What did what what did it stir for you, or was it just convenience or coincidence?
0: So I think a bit of balls. Once I got into fintech, uh, it was early days. Fintech was just was born and we didn't even use that word at, at, at that time. Uh, so I think I was on early days and it was so interesting to see all these new technologies and changes, you know, how big kind of is on MasterCard, kind of loses that battle, how all kind of new payment schemes, are even kind of real-time payment schemes are, are developing and then all the other uh, infrastructure around it was... Currency Cloud, or as, as a kind of solution, like Nigel Verdon founded first, and then moved to build Rails Bank. So, working next to him and understanding that, and being part of that, was is, was really exciting. And you know, on one side, it's just what uh, eight eight years, so it's not that bad at much, uh, because and because the fintech is growing so much. So, having that understanding, domain expertise, really really helps being there from early days being able. In your head to draw how different payment schemes, card schemes work, how many players are there, and connect all those dots. I never say never. I think the main you can always learn. You know, I jumped from from ad tech to fintech, so I think uh, the the concepts apply. Uh, but yes, once you are in that area, it's 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 um, easier. And look, fintech is very very broad, right? I was more uh, banking as a service, rails bank in a uh, business. I went again. My customer became a SMEs, businesses, so direct customers, solving their pains, uh, but more on transactional banking side. And now with Uncapped, I needed to learn all the credit side of my, our business, kind of issuing credit or loans in a real-time uh, data-driven uh, revenue-based financing way. So learning the credit space, which is just another part of, of FinTech, is, is amazing. And I haven't even touched InsureTech or, or other areas. So. Fintech is huge, uh, and I, I like
1: it. Well, and it seems to like you too. Uh, several of the companies that you've worked for, as you've mentioned, um, have scaled really, really quickly. Um, so Rails RailsBank, uh, Revolut, um, and now you're, you're working in NCAPT, and I'll be very curious for you to share a bit more about that. Um, what do you think is the main thing that you took from your first fintech experience that has helped you to scale effectively in those next two high growth uh, roles?
0: So probably I can add that even before Finter, who um, I was a uh, kind of agile guy, or even in Lithuania, they called me agile evangelist. Uh, when I came back from Sweden, uh, when I had my first Scrum implementations there, I started sharing, uh, going to conferences, creating agile Lithuania community and, and, and sharing those knowledges. So I think uh, it's just the time when uh, the ideas that we talked 10 years ago, when it's kind of seemed to work in two, one, two teams, really resonated, you can really implement that. And that's what uh, I shared that LinkedIn article, uh, w- w- which you referenced. So I try not to use any more of these buzzwords, agile or stuff, because people <laughs> misuse them, I think. But I think the main concept that you can create only the speed you can and, and the customer satisfaction you can achieve by working in cross-functional teams finally, finally comes. And especially the high growth companies build it that that way. I think where the trick is still, when you are one, two, you know, team company, of course, you start with that. Like no one argues, no one has departments when you have uh, five people startup or even 20 people startup. But when you're coming from 20 to 50, that's where kind of the issue starts. And I see so many still even startups going to this functional model and trying to create departments and then start divide and concur. They they all good style. And then they argue why we are slowing down. Of course, there is another school of thought that, you know, you don't create any processes and everyone has to be like a startup. Everyone can make decisions and and everyone runs around. And then the engineers or product people say, we are not empowered because someone kind of I need to I know to share my what I did with others uh, so uh, so what I'm trying and is all my whole con- agile consulting experience to be in the middle so I think agile is very very hard process because you need to deliver very fast in small increments and that's very hard but if you get that you get that uh, kind of delivery speed and you can get that only by working in a cross-functional manner so I think I was lucky enough to join uh, high growth companies that understood that and be part of kind of advocating for it and pushing for, for uh, outcome. When outcomes matter, when I say What's the matter is smile on customer's face. We're not here to write code. It happened that some of us here writing code. It happened that some of us trying to define the roadmap. It happened that some of us doing design. But what matters as a kind of sport team, in a sense, you either win the game or lose the game. So here, either customers puts a smile on their face and most often they pay money for you for that uh, because you provide them value or they don't. And, and then you stop arguing, do I like this button or, or, or where to move things? You see did they solve the problem and did customer vote for that with their wallets?
1: What trends or pieces of Agile have you found did not work throughout uh, your experience um, versus which ones have you found to be the most successful? Because Agile, as you say, encompasses a lot of things and it works for different companies based on different conditions. So what have you said, "Eh, this this might sound nice or this might be popular from a buzzword perspective, but it hasn't really worked for you?
0: So I think the point is that every one of us has a very different definition of Agile. If you go to Agile manifesto, it's just four statements, which everyone can interpret 20 different ways. So uh, uh, that's why I think this question is a bit misleading because you will uh, we will kind of start picking ideas where, where which some of us, for example, I probably even wouldn't call Agile in some ways, right? Because I think if you read conceptually, all those four manifesto statements and 12 principles are live today and all of them work. Um, I think the question here, the biggest challenge that everyone faces, everyone kind of understand how to work it within one team, seven, eight, nine people, but then when you start splitting to two teams, when you start splitting to ten teams, that's where the issue starts because uh, there is not yet enough maturity to understand that within team, within different teams. Even if you read the books of, of, of uh, you know, Inspire Now, yes martin argues that teams has to be cross-functional but how to organize that when you have for example a revenue business you have hundred plus people they have to define a unified experience so if I'm a revenue business customer I should not understand that that was product was created by 10 different teams uh, how that then team still still wants to be imp- or has to feel empowered when they have to comply to, for example, our uh, coding uh, design guidelines or kind of usability because you cannot provide similar features in three different ways, right? Um, So I think that's where the issue starts. Spotify started. It was kind of putting very fast that Spotify model. Everyone started copying it 10 years after, which they told they're not using anymore because they grew up out of it. So I think the problem is that people try to apply the same ideas to different sizes. And for me, you need very different practices of agile when you are 20 people company, when you grow after 50, when you're 150, or when you are 500 and then further. For some reason, people try to use, don't look at the context and use what works for 500 people company in a 20 people organization or vice versa. What works in 50 people organization, try to apply it to 500 people organization and the context and the size really matters. You have to be very, very cautious about that.
1: I believe that you guys are working on scaling uh, agile now. Do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, your process and what you guys were thinking about at Uncapped? Um, might be helpful for other people listening.
0: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, the way we, I think, I borrowed most from that from from Revolut and now bring in and then kind of connects to the agile. I think the underlying principles you have to create a cross-functional teams that uh, have uh, decision being empowered and some area to own. The question is how to slice the product as, because there is no right or wrong answer. You can slice every product 100 different ways. There's always gray lines. There will always be overlap. So, so I think my, my key key point is always to explain to the team there is no likely alliance. It's not like we as a team own only I know, payments or only onboarding. There will always be interacting areas. But anyway, in, 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 in essence, you need to create these cross-functional teams that own some area. You slide that, that that doesn't matter. Then the second question is you know, who still makes decisions? And I think we sometimes go too fast, too far to that uh, kind of kindergarten moment. Everyone is empowered, everyone needs to talk, everyone wants to make decisions, and that brings slow in us. For example, I was working in Sweden and, and, and studying for a few years, they love consensus. And I, as a recent European, I was so frustrated about that when you kind of people nod in the room and then it seems they didn't agree, they just agreed that they might think about that and you have to get the consensus but that slows down many things so still who is decision maker right you need to understand that and agree and i like that when people really understand that we all have different responsibilities uh, and we need to listen to everyone experiences and ideas but then product owner still makes a final judgment call on on, on the roadmap decisions the uh, chief of engineer or who's your engineering lead on the engineering decision design chief of design or designer on design decisions uh, that that's why I think where, where where the magic happens, because you need to involve everyone and listen and challenge, but then you have to have to make decisions very fast. So the way we organize the teams is we put lots of ex- uh, uh, responsibility on product owner, we call them, or product manager. And we tend to look at them as little CEO of startups. So you own lots of things from process to business to team management even, and you kind of manage that cross-functional team. You could argue it's a bit different than Scrum model where they have product owner as part of the team and then Scrum master doing the process. So, so there is debate there. But I found if you put more kind of responsibility on a business side, then you really focus on business results. Unless again, your product would be very, you know, R&D engineering product, then this could be different, but I'm talking more on consumer side side products. So that helps. Uh, and, and then when you have these cross-functional teams, you need to create processes that sync them in and explain to people that that syncing is not losing my empowerment or my my autonomy. I need to spend time now to explain what my team is working, what are my team's plans so that I could sync and adjust with other teams because I can tell you they will overlap and they will influence each other. So not to be sing even my own autonomous team. No, you might listen to what other teams, product owner, or this engineer says and you might think about that and change then your team's decision because they have to go, go, go and sing. So that article I wrote a few uh, kind of uh, weekly or bi weekly meetings that we hold. We explain what's the reason of each of that. We still need to talk to every employee, why it's not bureaucracy and why it's needed and what's the value out of it. Uh, But they're getting there uh, bit by bit. Uh, As an example, I could tell, for example, engineers stopped liking demo, which for me, it it seems it's an amazing meeting when you show your results every two weeks, but they started feeling it's a report to kind of some, some listening. And then you're figuring out, okay, how we can make that... Uh, event that's really about understanding what other teams are doing and sharing what your team is doing so that when you're making further decisions you are informed and you're not uh, local optimizing for local optimum you have in mind the bigger picture the how your work interacts with others
1: excellent do you think you're saying earlier on that you know you encourage your teams to remember there's not one right way to slice the product right um, you can cut it as you said in a number of different ways. Do you think there's signs that say, yeah, this is a good. This we've thought about this in a good way. Like this is going to be um, successful for what we need to deliver against the business goals and the company vision right now, or is it is it too individualistic per company for you to really say, yeah, here's some good indicators. What
0: I learned, I think, it does not matter too much how you slice because, as I said, there's many ways. The, the, the question is, does it help you in the most effective way to achieve business objectives, the way you define them? Do you do OKRs? Do you do KPIs? So really what the outcome as a company we want to achieve and then does then every team can meaningfully explain how they contribute to, towards that? Uh, so I think that, that's the most important because too often uh, we organize teams based on software architecture or existing product architecture, how if we have, I don't know, five menu items, so we'll organize five teams about those five main major menu items in our product, and then they kind of deal in, internally. But things change fast, especially in startup. You know, if you change the, your strategy, if your PRs quarterly changed, is that structure still the most optimal to achieve the, those results? Of course, there are caveats. I think we always, uh, I don't know why, still inclines to split teams by um, kind of uh, technical layers. So we really want to do as much as you can to avoid creating platform teams or kind of back-end teams, unless it's a really good specific reason. Or you already have five, ten teams that you really need the service teams towards those if i have three c3 teams and then one of them is platform team for me that's usually too early to create it so so again people read those books that you know there are for example a team as a service to other teams and and, but then they implement that while they are only two teams and 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 in that sense i think it doesn't work so two maybe advices as i said one is to look at objectives of the company and does this organizational structure really really still uh, solves it and second don't uh, create too early those platform or services teams because if you read bigger companies' experiences, they have them. But if you are one, two, three teams organization, it's much better when every team has a client-focused objective when they really need to deliver for the end user and the client, not towards the other team.
1: I'll ask you a question. It may not be the sexiest question in the world, but um, a lot of the companies I've worked at where we've had platform teams, Oftentimes it's because the teams themselves, the product teams that are often customer facing, they have such a hard time prioritizing tech pay down and infrastructure work. And they just feel that they can never get the time and attention, right? Uh, Because their work is not customer facing or it's more technical and difficult to explain the business value. what advice would you give to people who, you know, are are working with their platform teams and saying, or, you know, their platform team members, I should say, and saying, we want to embed you within the actual product teams because this will help you do X. What would you say there? How would you pitch them?
0: So I think I always ask why we do these things, what problem we are solving, and then what we are not solving for, because you always make a trade-off, there's never... Uh, if you choose something, you don't choose. You didn't choose something else, and that's a good question. And as you say, if people start saying and answering the question that we do that because, as you mentioned, business does not prioritize this, then my answer: so can we solve that problem? Let's really think and solve the actual problem rather than avoid it. And I was lucky enough that you know, in companies I work companies really want to solve the problems and they're not political and you don't need to to play those games. So once you start saying, if that's the problem, let's solve it. Why we are not having time? So for example, again, in GAP, you know, we, our engineering team, we still have functions. So every function has their own uh, kind of depth backlog. So engineering, design, operations has their own technical depth backlog, which is not what we're doing on, on the product side. And then they uh, incentivize themselves to prioritize that. And in our case, every second, so be weekly, uh, once in two weeks, one day is off backlog work. So we don't, you don't work basically for your product owner anymore. You more working whatever within your function. And then with your backend engineers, frontend engineers, uh, designers, you need to agree what are top issues we want to solve. What that helps, first, it puts a constraint so they don't two big items because it's not hard. You can't do a lot in one day in, in sense. But another, if, if, can, if you look, it's kind of two days in a month is out of 22 working days. So it's almost 10%. Uh, if five good engineers get together or three designers get together, they can do a lot. So it's actually a lot, if you if you look from from that perspective, so so yeah, so that's for example a way to solve this. And we say, look, you prioritize it. This is capacity we all- allocate for that, and this is the forum where you can decide. And it's so exciting. So even at the beginning, the uh, at least in my experiences, people are so uncomfortable prioritizing things themselves. But when the mo- the kind of the, the wheel starts turning, you can see how many st- things they stop um, complaining that there's a technical debt because you know, debt is when you need to pay it, right? When you, if if, if loan is without interest, it's not a debt. It can be there if that part of code is never touched by any customer. We wrote it five years ago and it's never touched. I understand it's very upsetting. I understand that reading it, it's, it's bad, but you don't need to read it because you never touch it. So uh, giving this empowerment for teams to prioritize the technical backlog after futurations again, uh, they they learn and I. read we realized that they stopped doing things which they were arguing that they are needed and stuff. And they really look at them from real also business perspective, because anyway, they prioritize those items that touch them every day and they are painful. And therefore they prioritize the right items without us doing it for them.
1: Yeah. I think your perspective is super valuable because um one of the most useful arguments I've found to try and help uh, advocate for this is that having less tech debt means you can move faster, right? Um, you can be more experimental. You can try things like, uh, an outcome of having a lot of tech debt is things are harder to do. Um, And I, I often feel that a lot of the engineers that I work with, or if I work with technical more technical product owners, like communicating that is the most difficult part. Um, And it's like you, as you say, right, you have, you have a kind of a starting in software engineering, but you were always into translating. How do you translate that? And I think that's one of the most valuable things we can give to those individuals who are in a position where they want to advocate for taking care of paying down tech debt, right? Um, But they don't necessarily know how to advocate for it. And unfortunately, not every company is as good, I think, at uh, prioritizing as it could be.
0: Well, sure, but my advice would be like, ask what problem we are solving. And if people say, no, the problem is that technical debt is not prioritizing, that's why we're creating this structure, I would say, can we think of totally other way to solve that problem because you are actually just hiding the problem versus solving it?
1: Right. Focusing on the wrong problem there, right? Um, okay, cool. So uh, enough on um, kind of organizational structure and kind of processes that have helped you scale. Let's talk about where you are today and what you're doing.
0: So yeah, today I'm uncapped, capped uh, Chief Product Officer here. So we provide a revenue-based financing so basically data-driven uh, credit solutions as uh, so we're happy to serve the e-commerce businesses which are line digital so we don't need to ask a- a- any any numbers from you we ask you just allow us to connect your data sources and forecast your business and we're expanding those services also to different other different financial services we have a card issued for them we issue the, the the bank accounts uh we're launching different geographical markets so it's an exciting time to build one more fintech
1: we have a lot of listeners um, on for the love of product that are startup um, and they're startup founders, and they may be looking at taking on funding. So explain to potential customers who are listening, what's the difference between, you know, uncapped versus a more traditional financing um, or growth model?
0: Yeah, so one of our USPs is uh, that even if you're looking for VC funding, that's great, but part of it, you can uh, get through, uh, uh, different type of funding, for example, ours are RBF and therefore to dilute less uh, and uh, go faster. The same with other other would be venture debt, right? So our customer our customer segment or where we serve the best is if you are SaaS business or e commerce business where you can predict uh, and you have already a bit of a history of trading. It means by data we can predict how your business will grow, but you need uh, finances, for example, to buy the inventory, right? If you are e commerce business, you need face uh, someone in China, then they ship it, then only sell it, and only then revenue comes in. So to, to, to cover that gap. Or if you assess businesses, you can see that this is the, how fast my subscriptions are growing. If I add more to marketing, then, then I could grow it fast and I'll, I'll get the payback period. So those businesses that are growing, that can prove these numbers, that, uh, that issue is current cash constraints. Uh, They can go to ncap.com. Basically, they only ask to make connections to the systems that they use. If if their shop is on Shopify, they connect that account. They connect the bank through open banking. They connect their marketing platform. We pull the data and based on that data, we're making a forecast basically of your business behind the scenes. We're now working how to expose that forecast for you because it's, I think, a valuable information even you would like to, as a customer, would like to have. Based on that forecast, uh, we measure the risk and and, uh, advance your funds. Uh, The most also exciting that as we are real fintech, uh, we give you a card to use those, we don't ask any manual kind of payments, everything's automatically connected from your account, so you don't need to remember every Friday to pay back your debt, all the money moves automatically, and you can see that on the platform.
1: Fantastic. And I think you guys did, um, was it Series B round last year or?
0: It was 80 million Series A last year. So
1: series A. Okay. We're looking, so we're looking for Series B. Okay. So 80 million Series A. Um, and what did you guys plan to do with that and how has that gone? Um, it sounds like you guys will be going into another funding raise uh, round soon, but tell us how it's going.
0: It was uh yeah we, we used that money to grow the team so we, we grew for 100 plus uh people throughout last year we uh, uh grew our lending numbers also six times and, and, and revenue so we invested a lot in, in our credit and underwriting platform but on side as i mentioned we build those uh banking services so we were Thinking what else financial needs we can serve uh, to our e-commerce businesses uh, as our customers. And we believe that the challenger banks uh, like uh, Revolut Business or if it's United States, Ramp or Brex are more generic uh, banks. As long as you don't want to um, go to the branch and, and, and transact, you use them. But uh, because the market is growing and e-commerce is the biggest audience and the biggest um, um, vertical serving that specific vertical needs, understanding uh, that pains and solving them. We believe there is a good place for really niche niche player when 40% is a big niche, uh, but a tailored player uh, for e-commerce digital businesses that we can do even better than generic ones.
1: And what made you most excited to join uncapped right you'd have a lot of success uh, you'd come i think most recently you'd had some pretty large success at revolute um so what attracted you to uncapped
0: so few th- three things which i always look when, when i'm looking uh, in, in, into either joining or when changing the job so i think first of course is the product what we are building does it solve a real problem um, so really understanding what, what problem we are solving. As I said, in Moripay, in the early days especially, I learned how I was looking, tech, I had a technology and was looking for how to sort of find a solution for it, uh, and as, an again, software engineer probably from the background, so that uh, adds uh, to that. Uh, so here I'm really looking, is there a big problem that we are solving, so it's really understandable, It's really it will save uh, um, time, energy, money, and it will help even in society overall, right? So we, in both revolution Business and and Cap, we're serving small businesses, and we know that they are growing. They are building the, the the economy, and and as more we help them, uh, the better it is for everyone. So that's kind of inspiring. Second, uh, which I'm looking is, and I think that's what Revolut taught me the most. Can it scale globally? Uh, I had a good conversation with you know number two player in UK or number three player or number one player in Germany but if you're really constrained within one country it, it's great it's a great business but I think I'm, I'm always aspirationally looking for what we can build that can scale globally because that's where the magic is that's where technology uh, is, is, is the key to power those type of decisions and again in fintech is really hard because we all know financial uh, mm-hmm. systems are regulated and therefore, figuring out how to break these uh, borders, which does not exist in the digital world, but they exist in the physical world and the regulated world, especially, is exciting. And last but not least, of course, is the team and the culture and how we are going to build, right? Uh, uh, as I said, I, I really, in my team, I really believe in transparency and getting people on board and, and, and getting to follow follow you and in a good way and, and and be inclusive and hopefully to get more, you know, uh, different cultures and different uh, backgrounds people in. Uh, and for me, that that's uh, very important when I'm choosing and talking to the company. That's just honestly, again, was one of the reasons why I, after a year and a half, I decided to, 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 to leave Revolut. I mean, it's an amazing company. the 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 idea and, and the way it's built, like it's, it's real machine and, and, and Nick is building that. And if you listen to any of his podcasts or few of those that he does, um, he, he, he really understands how to build that the fastest way and that's why they're fast. But, and it was a great learning. But I have a belief that if you put more into people, if you spend a bit more time coaching them, if you allow them that one, two, three months to grow actually in a longer term you'll get more so so i'm looking to you know i'm investing in my team and and uh, all people in in and in cap so so that we would be a bit longer term than just the, the the next fastest thing you you can build so i think yeah so that's why having really people focused culture when we help everyone to grow yes we want to be ambitious yes we want to deliver yes we want to have the winners on the team. We want you know, to be the, the best in the champion, not just fifth or seventh in the league, uh, that type of environment, but when we can have a tough training session together and then get out for beers and, and have fun after.
1: Yeah, I, I think your point is very topical right now, right? with a great resignation um, and people needing to and advocating for, in certain cases, making decisions that prioritize the long-term over the short-term, and how do you think about that for employee development and creating and retaining really high-performing teams. Um, Outside of kind of that inclusion and working to make sure that you're bringing in a diverse set of team members um, to to be on the, the roster, you know, there's one other area that is particularly, I think, a passion point for you when you're looking at potential hiring. Um, and talk to us a little bit about, you know, what what that is and why that is.
0: So especially when I talk about product people, I always uh, emphasize that, A, of course, I want them to think about us as, as entrepreneurs. And ideally, if they have been entrepreneur, or they tried or been close to decision-making in early stage companies, that's a huge plus because especially if you were, I don't mean a CEO or founder, and you had to manage a bank account, uh, your mindset, your look to the world changes a lot. And it does balls on one side, as we just discussed, it can force you to be brutal, direct, and, and very much optimize just short-term revenues because you need to, to pay. So there's always negative side. But on positive side, you usually really try to understand the customer needs and to really solve the problem instead of just suboptimize because I'm that part of of, of the organization. So that's why I like this comparison of product owner, product manager, how you call it, as a CEO of a small startup. And... uh, Really having that entrepreneurship mindset and ownership of the end result, and therefore kind of managing and getting the team again as an empowered team. Uh, when I was discussing with my other with my few colleagues that that article, they said, "Yeah, but what happens if then, as the CEO becomes just a dictatorship and he tells she tells what to do?" And I said, "Yes, that's the threat of this type of organization. You can implement any." Well, organizational structure right and wrong. So if, if, if as a CEO, or as a startup founder, if you don't think that your team has to be empowered, and you want to listen to them, I mean, again, probably it works, but not in, in, in my world and not what I would advise for. Um, but yeah, having that, that, that scale is, is so important. So therefore, again, <laughs> we started this talk uh, spending six years, six years in Warped it was painful it was lots of learnings but I think it gave me so much to to come to any company and always take the ownership I, even if I'm not a founder uh, my wife tells that why does you care about it too much it's, it's not your company but I cannot help myself any company I mean, I'm trying to solve it as, as mine because I think that's what good entrepreneurs are they always trying to do best uh and to solve kind of to solve the customer problems so we deliver what we promised to them
1: yeah and after the founder mindset to to act on the best behavior of the business so um okay Vanus, this has been such a pleasure to chat uh we are getting to that point Point of the show where I'm gonna ask you my favorite question that I ask everyone, which is, if there was a museum in the world that was dedicated to the most important products, what do you think should be in that museum and why?
0: And I can be quite quite open of, of the thought, uh, you know, you have specific definition of the product.
1: You can be like, very open on the thought. I, I'm. We've had someone say a piece of driftwood. We've had birth control. We've had everything here. So uh, I think what is most important about this is what do you think is important contributions that have come through product? You can define product.
0: So... I like always uh, reading a bit of of history and why things work like the way they work. So probably I would start with one old one, which I think the wheel changed uh, as a product so much in our society in very, very early days. So it was an enabler of so many things uh, and, you know, for for centuries or or even thousands of years uh, was the key tool if you look like how how many things are built around the wheel. Uh, So I think that was one then of course as we're coming to new days uh i would put generically uh, a computer or computing technology you know from turing machines to where we are today (laughs) tablets or small devices anything that because it enabled us to really speed things up and kind of to go to this totally digital online connected world. i think the second one would be computer in general and then if we narrow it down, the last one, I think in the, at least, yeah, in the last few years, I was so impressed how fast communication changed. You know, I remember myself writing first emails when I was doing computer when I was what 16 and I was learning how to code the, w- w- in some remote school and I wrote my first emails because then they came up and then everyone started using emails and then what last two years because i'm mostly in an internal organization i don't talk kind of write lots of emails to customers so i don't do sales i use actually slack i stopped using email now when people write me email i need to almost i uh, move my emails to slack so i know i see notifications when someone writes those <laughs> so for me i think uh, not because slack is such an amazing pro- it is amazing product but i think from the sense that um uh, how fast we need to adopt adopt, uh, different communication channels. And I think the transition from email to this instant messaging, especially now, again, I didn't mention, but in-campus fully remote company. So so how, again, so much is, is enabled that you can work with your peers, with your team in a fully remote fashion and still feel that you're part of the team, still feel that you're committed, still almost feel the emotion that's happening somewhere around the world which kind of emails offline communication channel was much, much, much harder. So, so I think the, the a Slack as a representative of the instant messaging uh, is, is, is an example.
1: Fantastic. I can see why both of those should be in the museum. So uh, well well stated. Um, guess It's been such a pleasure to have you today joining us and telling us about your scale experience and uh, what you're up to at Uncap today. Thank you so much for your time and we'll be following your journey along the way.
0: Thank you for having me. Thanks for
1: listening to the podcast, guys. Be sure to share the word of product-led growth far and wide and let your colleagues, friends, family, neighbors, and anyone you think who would like to know that there's a kick-ass product podcast on offer from the Product-Led Alliance. If you haven't already, don't forget to sign up to the Slack community and check out all our other great content, upcoming events, and other ways to get involved at productledalliance.com. And let's come back again next time to talk more about the head, the heart of product.